0: Well, hey, old brothers. This is Didact, and this is another episode of Domain Query, TikTok Boom. A very warm welcome, as always, to all of my longtime listeners via Podbean. A very warm welcome to all of my subscribers on the site. Please make sure, if you have not already done so, to like, comment, share, and especially subscribe to the podcast, either on Podbean or through the site link, where you'll find a little subscription widget somewhere in the in the system, uh, but <clears throat> basically today's pod, uh, today's domain query, uh, episode is really about, uh, a question asked to me by a reader from my Telegram channel in the chat. And if you have not already subscribed to my Telegram channel, please make sure you hit the subscription, you know, click the join button, uh, link in the description box. I highly recommend doing so. It's a great opportunity to join. A really cool community of just very uh, chilled out guys and a few gals uh, a few a few ladies uh, but they almost never comment but the the guys in the chat are just a really interesting bunch from all over the world I mean we have people from well from the States from Canada, Catalonia, uh, in Spain we have people from uh, where is it? Cyprus, I think. We have people from Czechia. We have people from, well, originally from Germany. We have people from Australia. We have, uh, we have people from all over the world. Uh, New Zealand, you know, people just, it's a very international community. It's a small community of about 135 to 140 people, depending on how many members join. Most of them are pretty quiet. But we do get some interesting guys who uh, comment regularly. And it's very collegial, very welcoming, and just generally good fun. I mean, I certainly enjoy talking to people within the channel and handling some of the queries and responses that come out. And the query that sparked this one off, today's episode off, was one from a, a chap named GW. And he was responding to the fact that the... Um, the U.S. government, it, under the fake president, wants to give Ukraine another 37 or 31 billion dollars, uh, no, 37.7 billion dollar aid package. <clears throat> and that's after a further 60 billion dollars in aid in just the last nine months. So the total uh, amount sent to Ukraine would be close to 100 billion dollars. Now, keep in mind, Russia's entire annual military budget is barely 65, 66 billion dollars, or it was before the start of this war. These days, their budget, their military budget has been increased to about 90 billion US dollars, starting in fiscal year 2023, um, which is what they've just budgeted for effectively. So they're up their military budget. So the United States has spent in nine months, more than the Russian military spends in a full year fighting Ukraine. Now, the question, the, the the major question is, what the hell is all this money going for? But that's actually a separate issue. G W asked uh, related to this: What's another thirty-seven point seven billion when you owe thirty-one thousand billion? You know, referring to the debt of the United States, the debt will never be paid off. The only way out is default. Didact, what do you think would happen if the U.S. did default? Now, this is a complex question. It's not something that has an easy, you know, one-line answer. What happens if the U.S. does default on its debt? To understand this, you have to understand what the U.S. dollar actually is, and how it got to be where it is. And then you can start unpacking the effects of a debt-based default. Now, the first thing to realize about the US dollar today is that it is a debt-based currency. It's nothing more than that. It's not money. The dollar is not money. And it's very, very important to grasp the difference between money and currency. Money performs very specific functions, and it's a universal, though specific, application of a concept that I discussed in my last Didactic Mind podcast a couple of weeks ago. In that podcast, I pointed out a fundamental truth about money, which is that it is a translation of your time and your life into things that you can buy. Currency, by contrast, is just paper, or in the case of most modern currencies, either cloth, a special type of cloth, or a type of plastic that denotes supposedly money. But actually, it's not backed by anything. Money has to be backed by something to have value. Because again, remember, money is just a translation mechanism from your life into things that you can buy with your time. So, By definition, money is backed on both sides by time on the one hand and goods on the other. Currency is backed by absolutely nothing. It's backed by the full faith and credit of the US government. Well, the US government doesn't have a gold linked currency and hasn't had since the early 1970s when Richard Nixon went off the gold standard. So there's nothing behind the US dollar. Why then is the US dollar the world's reserve currency? Because when the dollar was backed by physical assets, the power of the dollar came from the power of the US economy. And the stuff that the dollar could buy linked directly back to the stuff that the US economy produced. There was a time before the 1970s when the U.S. economy was the most powerful industrial economy in the world. There was no other country that had the production capacity, the manufacturing ability of the U.S.A. And that was true really from basically the beginning of the 20th century. It is remarkable how quickly the United States lost its manufacturing base because when you think about where it started and where it's ended up the the destruction of its manufacturing capability is is staggering it went from being the most manufacturing intensive economy in the world to essentially a services-based economy with uh, really a, a very heavy financial component and i'll get to that in a moment so what then kept the u.s dollar going after uh, after Nixon stopped the free convertibility of the dollar into gold. The answer is the petrodollar. Now, why is this important? Why is this such an important concept? It's absolutely critical to understand how this works. It's a very simple idea, but it's a very profound one as well. In the 1970s, early 70s, Nixon understood that going off the gold standard would mean a very sharp devaluation of the dollar, which is exactly what happened because everybody was like, well, you know, if I can't buy gold with my dollars, why why would I want to hold dollars? And they started dumping their dollar holdings and moving to something else. So ultimately, the reality of money kicked in. Something has to back up that money. You can't just issue currency endlessly and expect that to work as a means of facilitating trade and transactions between people. You need actual hard stuff to back things up. Well, the US economy desperately needed fuel. This was the, the the time of the first great oil shock when oil prices basically quadrupled in the space of like a few months. And the easiest way to get that oil was not actually to drill domestically because the environmental movement had kicked off and also because uh, the the... the richest American oil wells had already run dry. So, Kissinger went to see the Saudi royal family in secret and did a deal in which the United States would supply weapons to Saudi Arabia and promise to protect the House of Saud. In return, Saudi Arabia would sell uh, America oil. America would buy that oil in dollars. Saudi Arabia would then recycle that back into the American financial system by buying U.S. Treasury bonds. Why is this important? Because when U.S. Treasury bonds are in demand, that keeps bond prices high, it keeps bond yields low it means that domestic interest rates can be kept lower than they would be otherwise. So, the US economy prospered immensely because there was this sudden inflow of money into the economy, interest rates were kept low, and that money was then redistributed artificially throughout the entire financial system. None of this would have been possible without the petrodollar. More than that, The the U.S. and the Saudis agreed to denominate the trade of Saudi crude in dollars. Why is that important? Because it meant that anybody who wanted to buy Saudi crude, which, you know, they're the biggest oil producer in the world, uh, and have been for some time, they weren't always. uh, uh, Trump, under Trump's economic policies, the U.S. actually became one of the world's biggest net oil exporters and became basically completely energy independent. But the Saudi policy of selling oil only in dollars meant that if anybody else wanted to buy oil, they had to buy in dollars, which meant they had to get dollars, which meant they had to go to the US, which is the only place you can get dollars. So, what did they do? They invested their money in American banks and in return, you know, for their foreign currency holdings, they got dollars in exchange. Where did they put those dollars? They used it to buy Saudi oil. Where did the Saudis put those dollars? They put them back into the treasury market. So now you have a completely debt-based economy all of a sudden. Well, not suddenly. This took years and decades to, to come into effect, but the effects were felt very quickly. The dollar stabilized and quickly became the international standard of trade and exchange. So that is, you know, a warp speed introduction to why the dollar has such preeminence. I mean, initially it was because the dollar was backed by stuff and it replaced the British pound almost seamlessly because the British uh, economy shrank dramatically relative to the U.S. economy. The U.S. economy became an internationalized, mercantilist, uh, you know, trade-based economy exporting its manufactured goods to the rest of the world. And that worked very much in its favor to, to push out other currencies. Because if you wanted the most efficiently produced mass manufactured goods in the world, you'd have to go to the States to get those goods. You would have to buy in dollars. To get dollars, you would have to park your currency in America and so on and so forth. Then the currency was delinked from gold. Then the petrodollar kicked in. Okay, so now you understand that everything that the rest of the world uses in terms of dollars gets recycled into the American financial system in the form of treasury bonds, which are, if you buy bonds, if you buy U.S. treasury bonds, that is effectively the same as holding cash. Now, here's the kicker. All of those bonds have to be, have interest-bearing coupons, right? So the U.S., Uh, government issues these bonds and those bonds have a promise that you will receive a certain amount of coupon. You will receive, you know, uh, there was a time when US treasury bonds yielded like 10%. And it wasn't, you know, it was uh, about a generation ago. If you you go back to just before the the first Gulf War, interest rates were about 10% back then, treasury rates. And you could get 30 year treasury bonds that paid 10% coupons, meaning every six months, you would get 10% of the face value of the bond. You know, if you bought a hundred million in bonds, you would get 10 million in coupons semi-annually, meaning five million, you know, every six months. So that is an astonishing deal. I mean, that, that is really, it's an astonishing, amazing deal. But over time, as more and more money plowed into the United States and more and more of that money <clears throat> made its way into the financial system, the, the interest rate went lower and lower to the point where treasury yields, you know, went down to like half a percent for very short dated instruments, one percent, two percent for long dated instruments. All of this meant a system awash in cash, but they also needed ever more debt-based financing to keep itself afloat. And thus we come to the situation we're in today where because the United States has never faced in the last 50 years a reckoning in the form of a need to adjust its currency to get back to uh, that translation of uh, labor into products through monetary mechanism but instead has been artificially propped up by this petrodollar system. Because of that, the United States has never had to reckon with its fiscal stupidity and foolishness. Unlike any other country, it's always been able to issue debt on global markets. Because the U.S. dollar is the global standard of trade, because the U.S. bond market, the U.S. treasuries are... The global safe haven for capital. Every time there's a, a major issue somewhere in the markets, everybody flees into treasury bonds. There's a way to park their cash and earn some money in the process, earn some temporary yield without risk because they're so freely convertible, they're so completely liquid. So, what would happen if the United States were to default? Well, the United States would first and foremost... Be unable to pay uh, any of its obligations to any of its creditors, and that means China, Japan, and uh, like the Arab countries. Basically, they are primarily the the big holders of U.S. bonds. A lot of Keynesian idiots will argue that uh, you know most of the bonds in the in in the American financial system are actually held by domestic Americans. So. It doesn't matter. It's just money Americans owe to themselves. Yeah. Well, guess what happens when those people, when, when the US government defaults? Well, consider what happens in the, in the event of a default. The, 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 the process of defaulting is not so much that, is not necessarily so much that the government or the entity cannot pay back the face value of the bond, like the debt is too great it can happen when the bondholder is unable to pay the coupon on the bond meaning the, the 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 semi-annual interest payment if that happens that's a default that's that's a default event and what does that mean it means that the issuer of that debt no longer has the ability to pay for the things he's promised what would happen in that case it would be a cataclysm i mean we're talking a financial catastrophe the likes of which we have literally never, ever, ever seen. It's never happened before. The The idea is that, you know, the, the interconnectedness of the financial system is such that if the United States were to default, everyone would rush to withdraw his or her money at the same time. It would be like a bank run but on a global scale involving billions and i do mean billions of people and untold uncounted trillions of dollars i'm talking on the scale of hundreds of trillions of dollars it's like the the level of financial meltdown involved would make 2008 look like a picnic it would be a meltdown on a scale that we've never seen before and God willing, we'll never see again. Essentially, every bank holding a substantial portion of its assets in treasuries would go under. Why is that the case? Well, a little complicated, but um, uh, basically, if you look at any bank, they have uh, loans, right? So uh, people who put their savings at the a bank... They, they put their money into the bank and the bank then lends that money out in the form of loans. Now, to a bank, if, if you d- deposit your money as in, in a savings account or in a checking account, that from the bank's point of view is a liability because it means that they have to, they have to pay you interest on that, um, uh, on money that you have effectively lent the bank. That's really what it is. You're lending the bank money. They've bought up uh, a, they've bought an IOU or they, they've issued an IOU to you, essentially. I mean, it's a really simplified version of it. On the back of that, they lend out the same money to people in the form of loans, right? And that then is an asset because it brings in cash. They pay you cash. So that takes out cash. Now, in a fractional reserve system, which is what most world, countries in the world operate under, the banks lend out Multiple times more money in loans than they have in deposits. Why? Because, in theory, most of the time this is true, most people will not come to the bank and demand their money all at once, right? They won't withdraw all of their money all at once. So a bank can get away with lending out, you know, three times or ten times the amount of money that they actually have in their, well it used to be in their bank vaults, nowadays it's in their electronic ledgers, in the form of loans. Now, to guard against the possibility of a bank run like I've described, most banks hold assets as a reserve, as a capital cushion, against that probability. Those assets Typically are U.S. Treasury bonds. They include U.S. Treasury bonds because those bonds are considered to be as good as cash. The reserve requirements vary from country to country. In most countries, uh, I mean, you could probably say around 10% of a bank's assets are, uh, of of a, of a bank's total, you know, lending book has to be held as assets and they can lend the other, you know, 90% out. So what happens when a bank needs to quickly pay back its, uh, its, its customers? It's, you know, business or, uh, consumer retail customers quickly. Well, all it does is it sells some treasuries, gets the cash back and gives that to its customers. Easy. That's in a well-functioning financial market. Imagine if the U.S. government defaulted. Suddenly the asset base of every single bank connected to the U.S. financial system would be wiped out there the the value of those bonds would fall to zero overnight in not even overnight in a matter of seconds and that would wipe out most banks in most countries which means the entire financial system in those countries would freeze it would be impossible to get money out of an ATM not that most people use ATMs these days it would be impossible to pay for any groceries because the payment rails would fail it would be impossible for people to pay their rent and their utility bills it would be impossible for companies to pay people salaries that's the magnitude of the disaster we're talking about if the united states government defaults on its debt who would be affected everybody who would be worst affected well obviously the united states but don't think that every other economy would be affected the same way. China would be hurt very, very badly because they hold an enormous quantity of u s dollars um, to manipulate their currency they they hold well i mean the, the the exact number varies, but it used to be fairly recently about two trillion dollars worth of u s bonds. I think they've been selling off uh, that that amount for quite some time so If they suddenly took a a $1.5 trillion hit on their balance sheets, if China took that hit, do you think China could remain solvent for very long? The answer is no. It can't. Because China actually has enormous debt problems of its own. Most of the developed nations in the world would crater overnight. It would be a collapse of a way on a scale that like we literally, we can't imagine. It's just too terrifying to imagine. It's genuinely disturbing to think about like th- these are the kinds of things that will give you nightmares. If you think about it, it's, it's genuinely truly terrifying. And this, by the way, is why there was such a heavy handed intervention, uh, in global financial markets. In 2008, because regulators were absolutely terrified of the exact scenarios that I've just described, where people would essentially not be able to pull money out of ATMs. They wouldn't be able to pay for groceries. They wouldn't be able to go to shops. They wouldn't be able to have any kind of decent life. Um, it would, it would be, a catastrophe unlike anything we've ever seen. Truly. So, how likely is this to happen? It's more likely than people think. I'm sorry to say this, it's much more likely than people think. The last couple of US Treasury auctions have been disasters. Now, um, I probably need to explain this a little. A, a Treasury auction is where the US Treasury actually goes into the primary market, goes to banks basically, and says, uh, we've got a new tranche of, I don't know, 10-year bonds that we want to sell. And they're paying, what, pulling a number out of thin air, two and three-eighths percent. The U.S. insists on quoting in these weird fractional values. Uh, you know, 2.375% yield, uh, paid, you know, coupon paid semi-annually. And, uh, they will try to auction off a block, a, a certain amount of treasuries. And, the bond price will be set based on individual banks' view of the forward rate curve. Uh, I won't go into that too much. It's complicated, but essentially it's a forecast of where banks think um interest rates will be, and then you know you discount back the cash flows and so on. But basically the point is that the, the Treasury tries to go out into the market and see who's interested and issues those bonds to people who want to buy them, and it's really primarily banks in the primary market. Well, the last couple of US Treasury auctions have been really, really bad. People aren't interested in buying US Treasuries anymore. Banks are deliberately, actively trying to reduce their holdings. Governments are trying to reduce their holdings of Treasuries. It's very hard to do, actually, because the Treasury market is so liquid that if you sell into that market, there has to be a buyer on the other side, right? Well, by definition, if you're able to successfully sell, somebody must be on the other side buying. You can't all sell at the same time. That's that. That's not how markets work. Um, somebody somewhere is buying these bonds. And it's usually, you know, American banks or global big investment banks who want to hold treasuries for whatever reason. Usually it's to settle trades or it's to do repurchase agreements or all sorts of complicated financial transactions. But ultimately... There's somebody on the other side buying these bonds. And yet, when the government needs to issue new bonds to cover its spending, its deficit spending, now, all of a sudden, it's unable to do that. This wouldn't be such a bad thing if it weren't for the fact that the U.S. government now needs to issue debt to pay for old debt. What do I mean by that? If you look at the interest payments alone, just the interest payments on existing U.S. Treasury debt, The interest payments run in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And those amounts have to come from somewhere. They're not being covered by taxes. They're not being covered by spending cuts of any kind. The United States spends like a trillion dollars, if you add up everything, on its military alone. It spends another trillion-plus dollars on social programs of various kinds. Actually, it's more than that. It's way more than that. It's like two... It's Last time I checked, and it's been a while since I've run the numbers, but it's several trillion dollars on social programs of various kinds. And if you look at Social Security and Medicare alone, those two account for a a huge chunk of the U.S. government's budget every year. Which actually, by the way, the U.S. government hasn't passed a budget. The the House of Representatives, the the Congress has not passed a budget in, I I can't even remember when. I don't think it's passed a budget since the Bush era, actually, which is a direct failure of its duty under the Constitution. You know, they've essentially funded everything through continuing resolutions and budget amendment bills, but they've never actually passed a budget. They never agreed to pass Trump's budget in 2021, which accounted for a number of spending cuts and would have taken a step toward financial rectitude and fixing some of these problems. The only way that you can stop issuing debt to cover old debt is by cutting spending and raising taxes. Two things that Americans refuse to do. They hate the idea because you have so many boomer cucks who are completely wedded to the idea of Social Security. You cannot touch Social Security with a 10-foot pole. So. And that, I mean, Social Security actually isn't even really the problem. Medicare is the true problem. Medicare and Medicaid combined. You can thank Lyndon and Johnson for that one. So, you now have a situation where the United States faces perpetually increasing deficits at the same time that its tax base is decreasing, at the same time that its military expenditures are increasing, at the same time that its ability to restrain its own spending is decreasing and at the same time as its ability to fund all of these things is decreasing. So what happens? How does all of this end? Well, it ends with either the value of the debt being inflated away or a sudden hard crash. My view is that a hard crash is inevitable, sooner rather than later. Because the only reason people believe in the full faith and credit, etc., of the U.S. government is because the U.S. government is one coherent, cohesive you know, thing. Um, it doesn't work very well. It's deranged beyond belief. It's evil. It's corrupt. It's broken. But it's still a united political entity. What happens if the country breaks apart into civil war. Which bits of the map get redrawn? What happens if the red states break away and say, you know what, we're gonna set up our own country and it's gonna be red America and then the coastal cities are gonna be you know, blue America? Well, who takes what bits of the debt? Who, who assumes responsibility for how much of the debt? Nobody knows. And it's impossible to figure that out because the individual states are not responsible for that debt creation. It's the federal government that caused the problem. The individual states have a constitutional mandate to pay off the debts that they they create for themselves. Uh, if you look at California or Texas, they have debt, yes, but they are responsible for uh, maintaining a balanced budget in the in the long run. They cannot issue. They cannot uh, perpetually, in theory at least, they cannot run perpetual deficits because they don't control their own currency. So, they can't just inflate away the value of the debt. So you have all of these factors leading to one inevitable, inexorable conclusion that the United States will default and either the US deals with this through inflating away the value of the debt, through permitting hyperinflation, which is default. It is default by just another name. or By allowing it all to collapse. Now, if you understand these basic trends, you will now understand why the US government is so desperate to maintain control. The deep state understands all of these things very, very well. Every single thing I've said is a factor pushing the deep state to tap down ever more tightly on control. As evil and as crazy as it seems to you and me right now, there is a reason why it's happening. The deep state minions are driven by fear, terror, of the possibility of a debt default because they know what it means. They know what it means for the United States to collapse like that. It will be, It the, the thing to understand about collapses like this is that they do not happen uh, quickly until you get to a certain point, and then they happen immediately. It's If you look at the history of monetary crises or of defaults in general, what you'll find is there's this long, long lead-up to the events that cause the final collapse. And then the collapse happens so fast that it makes your head spin. That was the case in 2008, uh, when... Basically, Bear Stearns went under, AIG went under, Lehman went under, Countrywide went under, uh, who else, Uh, a whole bunch of banks just collapsed overnight, pretty much. I mean, they were, but the thing is, the the events leading up to that were known for years. It it wasn't news to anybody. It was just that most people didn't want to pay attention to it. Times were good, you know, money was rolling in, everybody ignored it. But the factors were there. If you watch the big short, um, that's a good, you know, layman's terms movie uh, to explain things. I mean, it, it, it dumbs things down to a level that gives me vertigo because, you know, it really, I mean, knowing what I know of these subjects and having been in the belly of the beast quite literally, I'm not joking when I say I worked for six and a half years on Wall Street itself. Knowing what I know of this, you know, they just reduce everything down to, like, really, 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 really stupid levels. But it's a good primer on what happened. Everything that we saw in 2008 was apparent for years, and nobody did anything about it. But then, when the collapse came, it came in a matter of weeks. And in the case of Lehman Brothers, in a matter of hours. The final collapse was a matter of hours. That's all it took. So now that you understand the sheer scale and horror of what could unfold, and you know, I've given you some idea. I haven't even gone into all of the details of what, what could really happen. I mean, we're talking, you know, global catastrophe of people being unable to withdraw money, unable to pay bills, unable to travel anywhere, being stranded, being poverty stricken overnight. I mean, really rich people having nothing all of a sudden overnight. What the hell are you gonna do in a situation like that? Nobody knows. Because we've never faced anything like this before. It's never happened. This degree of collapse has never happened in human history. So, you know, which countries would be immune from it? Well, Russia to some extent, yes, because Russia doesn't depend on uh, on foreign financial markets to anything like the degree it did in 2008 and even 2014. The Russian banking system by and large today is domestically funded. It relies on very little international capital for its deposits. But even they would be hurt badly because their creditors internationally would be unable to pay them. Because you know their financial systems would be ruined. China would go down the shitter almost immediately. Russia is about the only economy in the world, the only like substantial economy in the world that is protected to any degree from any of this. But even they would take a massive hit. I mean, we're talking, as a very rough guess, I'm saying, I'm going to say 15 to 20% contraction in GDP. We're talking millions of people out of work, uh, extreme financial hardship for the entire country for a while. I mean, they recover quickly, but it would take a while for a consumer driven economy like Russia's to really pick up the slack because while it is a consumer-driven economy, it's not consumer-driven to anything like the level of the United States. And the level of consumption in Russia is not debt-based. It's it's in present terms, meaning people don't really borrow more than what they have to fund their lifestyles. They they try to live more or less within their means, in general, in Russia. That's not, I'm generalizing, but that's more or less the truth. Life for ordinary Russians is very hard, Most of them just make enough just about to get by, uh, with the basics. They, they don't really have money for luxuries. So for them, you know, borrowing to fund their lifestyles doesn't really make a whole lot of sense unless they're buying a home or a car. And even then, if they're buying a home, I mean, that's, that's about the most that they will, that they will go into debt with. So, you know, China will be screwed. China is demographically screwed already japan will be destroyed i mean their debt to gdp ratio is 200 plus percent and they're one of the biggest holders of u.s treasuries and they've got a demographic problem and they're a trade dependent economy uh once trade shuts down globally they're boned europe will uh europe will basically become the dirt world i mean it will become a complete backwater uh, Latin America will be insulated to some extent, but that's largely because it's so dirt poor in, in so much of Latin America. Africa will actually be okay, but again, that's because Africa, I mean, you know, shithole of stand Central. What do you expect? They've got nothing. Um, their, their banking, they don't really have a banking system across much of Africa to begin with. So there's not much to collapse. But, the whole world would be plunged into an era of suffering and misery unlike anything we've ever seen. How do we guard against it? Well, pull your money out of the US if you can. Invest it elsewhere. Invest in hard assets wherever you can. You know, buy gold and silver, buy property. Um, doesn't have to be anything lavish, just buy something. Keep physical assets on hand that you can barter and trade. Uh, gold and silver are good bets. Silver, in particular, is probably a good bet because if you look at the you know the, the rate at which gold will increase, the the, the convertibility of gold uh, of silver into gold is is you know is way out of whack with historical averages. From what I've heard, I haven't done too much investigating into this, but apparently uh, silver is substantially undervalued right now. Again, don't take my word for it. Do your own research, but from what i've seen and heard silver is undervalued so gold will shoot up you know if gold shoots up 20 times in value from $1500 a troy ounce to um well, what would that be uh $30,000 a troy ounce silver will shoot up like 50 to 80 times in value I, I mean i'm representative numbers please don't take my word for it please do your own research Uh, I am not a financial advisor anyway. Do not take this as investment advice. For God's sake, do your own homework. But these are roughly speaking the kinds of things you can do to protect some of what you have. Make no mistake, every single one of us will suffer in the event of a US default. Everyone, anyone who's even remotely connected to the Western financial system will suffer. But there are steps you can take to protect yourself and your family make sure you invest in real things, hard assets, real stuff that if push comes to shove, you can barter away for goods and services for food. I mean, this is like, you know, extreme bug out mode I'm talking about. Um, you know, that's, that's about the best you can do in a situation like that. So to answer GW's question finally, what slow collapse, Slow collapse would be be slow, slow, miserable, painful, grinding uh, deterioration would, in a sense, be better than complete collapse. Yes. But the question is how much pain are we willing to endure? Because it's like ripping off a band aid. You know, either you take it off very, very slowly, which is incredibly painful, or you just yank it off in one go. If the U.S. banking system collapses, yes, that's going to destroy the global economy for a year, two, maybe three. But it'll start to recover pretty quickly because that sort of collapse will wipe out an enormous amount of crap in the system, in the the global financial system. The banks and institutions that survive will be in a very, very strong position to start rebuilding. And they'll be able to fill in the vacuum at scale in a way that American institutions can't do. So you're going to see the rise of alternative payments platforms and alternative financial systems all over the world very quickly. If you look at the Great Depression, this is exactly what happened. The Great Depression actually didn't take that long to recover from. What made it, what made a bad recession a Great Depression was not, uh, Hoover's laissez-faire approach, and this is a whole nother discussion. It was, in fact, Hoover's meddling in the economy that made it much worse. It was, in fact, Roosevelt's extreme meddling in the economy that made it ten times worse. So, when people talk about a depression lasting for decades, no, historical example teaches us that human ingenuity will recover from these kinds of crises very quickly. It will be a tremendous shock to the system initially. Millions will die. Billions will be plunged into poverty. But over time, and it won't take that much time, people will adapt, react, and overcome. And the global financial system that results will be substantially healthier, which is why the world is now moving toward things like bricks, toward um, a digital ruble backed by actual hard stuff, and toward a global multi-currency settlement system. Ideally, the United States would just accept it and try to play along, but of course that's not the evil empire's way of doing things. The evil empire wants to be in control and hold dominion over everyone else, because any alternative to the evil empire would result in the collapse of the evil empire. That's why the deep state is doing what it's doing. There is a real and terrible threat to the deep state right now, and that's what they're terrified of. So, uh I've gone into quite a lot of detail. I hope that's useful. I hope this has been informative and enlightening. Uh, as I said before, please like, share, comment, and subscribe. Don't forget to subscribe to the site. Don't forget to join the Telegram channel. And uh, yeah, let me know what you guys think, uh, if this is helpful, if this is useful. And I will catch up with you again in the next Didactic Mind podcast, which I hope will be soon once my voice recovers. That's it from me. This has been Domain Query, TikTok Boom, and I am Didact signing off.